0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn to Galatians chapter 4. We will be continuing through our Galatians series this week. We'll be in uh, verses 8 through 20, and I have titled this sermon Onward and Upward. If you have one of the uh, books, you'll see that there are questions to help kind of further study this. And I encourage you, if you don't have the booklet, there are some right by the Welcome Center uh, downstairs to grab one. They're great for, for discussion with your family afterwards, uh, just to, to dive in deeper into this text. But really what inspired me of this is uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, on his, in his final book called The Last Battle, uh, there is a, a, uh, a scene where they, they go onward and upward, or further up and further in. And this is really the call of the Christian life to keep our attention and our affection upward upon Christ and to continue to draw closer to him. And that's, that's really what our text this morning is, is pointing to, as Paul, uh, with great angst, writes to the Galatians, uh, the, the believers in, in, in the south region of Galatia, and charges them not to look backwards, but to look forward, not to slide down the hill, but to climb up the hill toward Christ, to keep their attention and their affections on Jesus. So last week, uh, Pastor Mike preached through the end of chapter 3 and into the first part of chapter 4, where Paul wrote, reminding the Galatians, they are no longer slaves with a lowly status, but sons with all the benefits and blessings of a son and an heir. And they are an heir in Christ Jesus. And if you have been granted, Paul writes, the blessing of relationship and status of a son, Paul then today says, why on earth would you act as though you are a slave? Why would you return to the bondage that you once knew after tasting the freedom of Christ. Paul will continue this argument through our text today. And the big idea that I hope we walk away from our text today is that God's true people, uh, Abraham's descendants of faith, and the argument that Paul made earlier in the book, God's true people reject idolatry, embrace the gospel, and grow in grace unto the end. And so, Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 through verse 20. We'll read that together and then come back uh, and look, look a little deeper at it. Verse 8, Paul writes this. "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by the natu- that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it is because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am... Present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and now change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. May it do a great work in us today. Well, the context of this text, we jump in mid-letter, uh, is Paul is saying, instead of keeping in step with the gospel, free as sons of God in Christ, many of the Galatians were turning to their former life of bondage, enslaved to sin. Paul likens righteousness by means of the law to paganism, really life without the knowledge of God. This is what he's saying, as you place yourself under the bondage of the law, it is as though you were living as God is not present in your life. Paul warns with utmost urgency, do not live as one in darkness now that you have the light. Like an orphan having been adopted into a loving, caring family, given the full blessings of a son, they have, like this orphan, then rejecting this gift and returning to the terrible living conditions of the orphanage. To Paul, this is absurd. This is foolishness. In fact, we looked a couple weeks ago, Paul calls it out, and he says, "'Why are you being so foolish, Galatians? "'When you have been given such a great gift "'as adoption into God's family, "'why would you return to the bondage of sin?' Now one thing I want to note is that in verse 12, as we just read, Paul refers to them as brothers. And the word that's used here, the Greek word that's used here, uh, could be translated as brethren or church. It's brothers and sisters. So the word there that's used is different than what Mike looked at last week in the word that's used for sons. Uh, This word here is church. And so These are believers that Paul is addressing. Their their salvation is not in question. And Paul is not uh, as much questioning their salvation, but their sanity. That's what's in question right here. Paul is saying, why are you being so crazy to reject what God has done for you and return to what, what used to keep you in bondage? Why, when you have tasted the life of freedom in Christ, would you return to the bondage of idols? which he compares to being under the law. And so that leaves us to ask the question, what is idolatry? Paul, this is one of Paul's main themes here. They're returning to idolatry. They're returning to setting something in place where God rightly should be. Why the lure of idolatry? We see it throughout Scripture what idolatry is, in basic terms, is putting anything in the place of importance which God alone deserves, essentially breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other God besides me. It's the first commandment that God gave his people. Anytime we usurp God of his rightful place of prominence in our worship, with our affections and our attention, we are committing idolatry. And the reality is, as Paul says here in the text, when you didn't know God, when you were enslaved by those that by nature are not gods, he's saying God is not behind this. This is not worship of the one true God. And what we see behind every idol is the luring whisper of the serpent. Way back in Genesis chapter three, where the serpent whispers in Adam and Eve's ear, place yourself in that role of importance. You can be like God. This is what idolatry is, is is placing something in God's rightful place. Little statues are not so much a problem today. Well, I guess if you count the bobblehead, uh, you know, sports characters, but we're not necessarily bowing down and praying to these statues as they used to do back during the time that this letter was written. But what are some common idols of our age? For there are many. Or let me reframe that question. What once held you in bondage prior to coming to Christ? As we reflect on that, and I spent some time this week reflecting on what are those things culturally that that hold us in bondage? Well, the idol, one large one is the idol of self. Self Self-centeredness, for example. We have Marketing campaigns that let you know you are the center of the world. I think Burger King's marketing campaign is have it your way. By the way, what they're communicating is it's all about you. Self-centeredness. Remove God's rightful place and place yourself there. Those who struggle with this idol get angry when they don't get their way. Often impatient, demanding. If these are describing you, you might want to take some self-reflection here. Am I making too much of myself? Do I stand in the possibility of putting, putting myself or, or having the idol of self-centeredness? Self-righteousness is also another idol that is alive and well in our culture. Those who find themselves under the idol of self-righteousness find their confidence in their ability to do what is right, or in other words, keep the law. God is pleased with you because you are good at at obeying him, at coming to church, at doing the things that are expected of you, and you find your importance there. Not that coming to church is a bad thing, not that following God's design is a bad thing, that is a very good thing, but what what is at stake here is what's going on in our hearts. Do we elevate that beyond its station? Other idols that I see in our culture would be the idol of addiction. Addiction shows itself in many ways. There are objective, uh, objective addictions and subjective addictions. What I mean by that is there are those that we have a standard and those that kind of move into a gray area. Let me talk about those for a minute. Some idols in our culture. The two big ones that we think of that are objective addictions would be substance addiction addiction. For other words, uh, drug use or alcohol abuse. These are bi- this is a big addiction that we see struggling within our culture, particularly here and now. Uh, another big addiction that we see within our culture is sexual addiction. Uh, For example, pornography addiction. We see these two things and, and, and we say, okay, these are two. God has a clear standard when it comes to substance abuse and to sexual addiction. It's easy to look in Scripture and say, this is behavior that is unacceptable to God. But there are also idols of addiction that are a little bit less easy to say, okay, God does not approve of this. There are gray areas in that. But they can be idols just as much within our culture. One example would be overindulgence. Can be an idol in our culture, whether that's food, whether that's a hobby, whatever you want to put in that, you elevate a good thing to a God level, and it becomes an idol. And this is very prominent in our culture. But this one is a little bit more difficult to identify or set standards for than the last two which is why I said this is a subjective addiction. It's hard to say, don't do this or spend this much time doing whatever, because this is somewhat of a gray area. But this is what I would say. We know, if we, and, and, and if we lean into the Holy Spirit and he uses our conscience, we know when we've crossed the line, when something uh, that may be a good gift from God has has we have elevated it above its station. Another one in our culture that's very prominent is personal comfort, especially in the West. We can easily elevate this to the station of idolatry where our comfort becomes what's most important to us. And again, this is difficult as there's no standard to say this, is, this much is okay, but this much is not, right? It's hard for us to say you shouldn't do that because there is no clear cut text for us to point to and say This is wrong, this is right. But again, God gives us a conscience. We know when we have crossed the line. Whether it's our hobby or whether it's our personal comfort, whether it's entertainment or materialism. You know, I did a quick search and found that the average American upgrades their phone every two years. Every two years. We upgrade our cars, we upgrade it. We are a culture that is always looking to the next best thing. And so we have to, knowing that our hearts are prone to wander, are prone to elevate good things to God level, we need to pay attention to that. To recognize, identify these idols within our own lives and hearts as well as within our culture. Because we read a text like this and we go, okay, idolatry, I don't have a little statue that I pray to, so this must not apply to me. We would be mistaken if we came to that conclusion because idolatry is alive and well within our own hearts. John Calvin said it this way. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. We make idols out of everything. And I would say it's because we are beings that were created to worship. But oftentimes, our worship is misdirected off of the one who rightly, one singular, who rightly deserves our worship. And we fall trapped To the whisper of the serpent, to worship other things, counterfeits that do not deserve our worship, but we so willingly give it. A healthy place to begin to ask yourself if, or do some self-examination if a good thing has been elevated to a God thing is, can I give this up? Whatever it is, action, behavior, item, can I say, I don't need this. And walk away from it. If, you're, if you bristle at the thought of that, mm, that might be an indication that you need to do some more self-evaluation and start praying, God, is this an idol in my life? Tim Keller says it this way. In addressing the, the problem of sin and idolatry, he says this, quote, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. When we look at all of these counterfeits, and and, and we see different fruit, different byproducts in our culture than for the Galatians as I just talked about, but it's the same root Paul asks, how is it possible when, when you are presented with adoption as sons and daughters through the person and work of Jesus Christ, why would you reject the gospel and embrace your former bondage to sin and act as if you have no understanding of God? Paul is beside himself. Why, once you've tasted the real thing, would you settle for the counterfeit, he essentially asks, the Galatians? Again, I love how C.S. Lewis states it, different from from Keller, but similar thread. Lewis uh, said this in an early message, and then uh, it's included in one of his books. He said this, he said, quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with cheap imitations when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the, holiday, by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This issue of idolatry has to do with desire, has to do with not desires being too weak or we need to subdue them. It's that we are misdirected in our desires, like the Galatians. Our desires focus on things that we can touch and use, and and these things are counterfeits of where our true joy is found. And so Paul is beside himself. Why are you settling for counterfeit things, O Galatians, when you have tasted the goodness of Christ? And so Paul charges the church, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things by nature that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, you're known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Why are you returning to bondage when you have tasted freedom? And then then Paul encourages the church that instead of looking backward or looking here at things to satisfy or find joy in, really maturing believers by God's grace are continually deepening their desire for the things of God in the light of the real thing. And as we see God for who he truly is, and as we grow in our knowledge of him and grow closer in our intimate relationship with him, the real thing that brings us joy becomes what we desire. And the counterfeits, they lose their shine. And this is what Paul says in the the coming text, in verses 12 through 15, where he says, listen, this is not just something I'm telling you to do. This is something God has done in me as well. Paul expected to hear reports initially of the Galatian church growing in their faith, maturing. But instead, what Paul was confronted with was they were stagnant. They were being distracted by things of this world, by false teaching from false teachers, growing in grace, which is a topic that Paul shifts to after addressing this topic of idolatry. Growing in grace means that love for God motivates true believers to deepen their love for God's word, knowing God intimately and accurately, to deepen their love for God's way. Obedience is not a chore, but a delight. And growing in their love, deepening their love for God's people, but these brothers, as we see from Paul's letter, were not growing in grace. They rejected the gospel and turned to the law, to works of the flesh. They were deceived by silver-tongued false teachers, in which to Paul, this way of living is really no different than paganism, than godlessness. And so after describing the foolishness of their actions, Paul turns his attention to how they ought to be. In verses 12 through 15, Paul encourages them to grow in grace, to reject idolatry and grow in the grace of God. He says, brothers, I entreat you. And again, brothers can be translated as brothers and sisters. Church, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, We're four chapters in, verse 12 of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and this is the first imperative or authoritative command in Paul's letter. He's been describing to them of their 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 condition, their waywardness, the the fact that they've been deceived by these false teachers. And Paul then takes a shift here in, in, in chapter four, and he says, This is how you ought to be growing in grace. This is where you've been distracted. This is how you ought to be moving forward, onward, and upward. He says, become as I am. Grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul had declared and demonstrated his freedom in Christ to the Galatian believers. He was a Jew by birth and lived in complete observance of the law. We saw that a couple months ago when we studied the book of Philippians. If you want to go look at that, Philippians chapter 3, specifically verses 2 through 11, Paul gives his pedigree of sorts, where Paul says, If you want to look at a good Jew, Paul says, I was one of the best. And he lists his list of credentials, and he was not kidding. Paul played the game well. But at the end of that list, he said, But it was worthless. Absolutely worthless. What has value is knowing Christ and what he has done. And so Paul says, this is not just something I'm telling you to do. This is something, a work that God has done also in me. And so Paul, as he challenges the Galatians to be as he is, he wants the Galatians believers to remember the gospel he proclaimed and demonstrated before them to recall that moment where they first heard the gospel when Paul came and preached to them. He wanted them to remember that he is also a product of the gospel at work in his life, being a Pharisee of Pharisees. But, and, and that he does not wish for them to return to godless living by their own self-righteousness. And so as I read through this, This is not something that's isolated here to the book of Galatians. Paul makes this assertion in in other letters as well. But I think we have a discipleship moment here. If you are here this morning, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Can you say the same as Paul? Can you imagine yourself telling someone, be as I am? or as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 be imitators of me as I am of Christ or Philippians 3:17 brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us the apostles can you tell fellow believers to imitate you in as much as you are imitating Christ let that sink in for a moment That is a a heavy charge, and if we were to do this in our own strength, that would be a burden, wouldn't it? I know it would for me, because I know my failures, the times I stick my foot in my mouth or forget to do something, I know how I fail people. And I know that for me to say, follow me as I follow Christ, there is a lot of weight to that statement. But Paul desires this for the believers in Galatia. He desires this for the believers in Philippi that read read his letters. He desires this for the Corinthian church, and God desires this for us as well. That we would get to the point that we would stop playing with the mud pies As C.S. Lewis says, the idols of this world, we would see the beauty of Christ and say, there is no greater joy than what Christ has given. And I'm going to pursue him and put his gospel on display in my life. And you know what? The first place that we begin is for those who are parents is with our children, you see, it's often for us to think, okay, I need to go and do this. I need, to, I need to meet with people. I need to have this encounter that tells great stories on the street because God is at work amount. No, it starts with our kids. It starts with our closest circles, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. It begins there. And, and it is not about perfection. It is all about Christ. Is the gospel on display in your life? If you are a professing believer, is the gospel on display in your life? And what does that look like? Are you quick to repent of your sin? Do people see you turning and relying on the gospel? Do your, does your spouse, your kids, your friends, your siblings, do they see the gospel at work in your life? Are you quick to seek forgiveness and work toward rec, recon, reconciliation when you hurt others? Do people see that? That is a work of the gospel in our lives because our flesh wants to justify our actions. Well, I did this because you did that. And really the problem is, you right. That's, that is a flesh response, but the gospel responds with repentance and confession. Do people see that in our lives? Do they experience that? Do they experience joy in the midst of suffering? That is also a result of the gospel at work in us. And I love that Paul is going to unpack this in the coming chapters. When people see you, do they see the love of God at work in your own life, being received and being displayed and given? they see patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness? See, these are things that God works in our lives. Is the gospel on display in your life? Can we... Say, as Paul, become as I am. And Paul says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul is saying here in this text, I was under the bondage of the law. And I have been released from that and found freedom in Christ. I have turned away from former ways to follow Jesus. Paul encourages the church. They have previously responded in this way. Paul has seen the gospel at work in their life, and he calls them to remember that. And that's what he does in the following verses, verses 13 through 15, where Paul says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Apparently, Paul first came to this region because of an illness. It wasn't part of his original plan, his itinerary. But God led him there, probably through means that Paul wasn't super happy about, but found himself in the Galatian region, preaching the gospel. And Paul says it was because of this illness. And there's no concrete evidence as to what this illness may be. So we really cannot say with... With confidence that we know it may have been something to do with his eyes. Uh, some, some scholars point to this text in Galatia, in Galatians that, that Paul says you would you would gladly give your eyes to me, that maybe something with his eyes. we do know that it was something visible. people could see that there was a problem. And because Paul tells the Galatian church, he says It was a bodily ailment that I came, verse 13, and preached the gospel to you at first. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? Paul says, I have seen the gospel at work in your life. In pagan societies, especially in that South Galatian region, in pagan societies, physical deformities were superstitiously viewed as curses from the gods and association with that person was avoided at all costs sometimes strongly avoided and violently avoided people with deformities were not associated with at that time and so Paul Likely having some visible deformity, some illness that he was dealing with, possibly something with his eyes that people saw, the average person in South Galatia rejected Paul, walked on the other side of the road, did not want to be near him. But Paul says, I saw the gospel at work in your lives, church, because instead of acting as all your pagan neighbors did, as all society did, and rejecting me, you embraced me. You were countercultural because of the gospel in your life. I've seen you keeping in step with the gospel. Paul says, remember that. Remember that moment where the gospel was working in your life and it was outflowing. It was affecting your actions, your attitude, your thoughts. The gospel was filtering such things. Paul calls them to remember that. And then he asks, what has become of your blessedness, this gift of the gospel working in you, What has happened? Who has deceived you? Why have you turned to darkness when you were walking in the light? Why, as an adopted and loved child within the family, would you leave the family and go back to the orphanage? Act as though you were a slave. Now again, I said this earlier. Paul, their salvation is not in question. He addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of sanctification. Why are you returning to this bad behavior that is putting a stain upon the gospel when you know how to be, you know how to act? Why would you return to that? Why would you play with these counterfeits when you've tasted The real thing. Having shown evidence of the gospel at work in them, Paul is beside himself. Why would they turn to works of the flesh? To Paul, this was utter foolishness. And so then we come to verse 16, a challenging verse within our text today where Paul essentially says, friends, speak the truth. As opposed to verses 17 through 20 where he says enemies will lie and the lies will sound better to you. But friends, your true friends, will speak the truth. Paul says it this way. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul is showing them I'm not here to tear you down. I'm actually here to reveal that you are heading in a destructive path and to call you to keep step with the gospel, to return to the way, the path in which you know you ought to walk, the path of freedom in Christ, not bondage to the law. And so Paul asks this rhetorical question to provoke them to thought. Once you've responded in love and kindness, now do you view me, Paul says, as an adversary because I speak the truth and call you to refocus upon the gospel? Paul wants them to consider their actions. And he's asking a striking question in hopes to make the Galatian Christians think about their actions and their disposition toward the gospel and toward Paul. What they've been intaking from these false teachers has influenced their thinking and their acting. And it has changed the way they view Paul and the way they view the gospel. And so Paul is calling this out in love, truthfully revealing to them, these influences are damaging to you and to your walk and your growth in Christ. So he says, friends, speak truth, but enemies, they tell lies. Verses 17 through 20, he says, these false teachers, that's the they, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. The false teachers appear to be for your best interest, but really the only interest that they have is their own. Paul says these false teachers want to isolate the Galatian believers from the community into following them for their own egos. I think there's, there's an important point here for us today within our context, that we ought to take care, you ought to take care, and I ought to take care of who we elevate to a place of teacher in our lives, what influences we have. Are they pointing you to Christ these teachers that we are listening to, that we've given a place of influence, are they pointing us to Christ or to themselves? We have many teachers in our context and our culture today that are more about themselves than they are about Christ. Sadly, very sadly within the church, under the banner of being a Christian, they are gathering a following for themselves. We need to be aware of this. We need to be aware that there are those who will say what sounds good, but the intent is to lead us away from the freedom we have in Christ. Paul points out that these false teachers have no good purpose, only vanity. They want to be made much of. And Paul says, showing honor to others is not wrong, but seeking your own glory is. And Paul closes the in text the, the text. For us today, with an endearing sentence, it says, I wish I were there with you so that as I scold you, I could also comfort you as a mother comforts her wayward child after being disciplined. So we see Paul has strong words to say to the Galatians and it's, it's not because he, he has a need just to correct them and leave them. It's because he loves them deeply and he desires them to be made into the image of Christ. And he sees that they have wandered from keeping in step with the gospel. And so in our text, Paul confronts the waywardness of the human heart to make good things more significant, to take good things and elevate them to the station of God. And in light of this challenge to the Galatians, as we reflect on how this text impacts us today, I ask you this. Are there good things in your life which you have wrongfully elevated above their station? How are we to respond if there are? If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, you are seeing things in your life that are too important. How are we to respond? First, acknowledge your need for the gospel, your continual need for the gospel. Recognize that in this way you are out of step with the gospel. Second, repent. Return to the Lord. And third, take the needed measures to rely, realign yourself with the gospel. And maybe this requires drastic changes, removing something that is distracting you. Maybe, uh, maybe it's small alterations to realign your heart, but by grace, take action to remove distractions, pursue Christ onward and upward. And constantly remember the good work of the gospel in your life. Ask God to remind you of those times which he has worked in your life for his glory. And if you are here this morning and you have you've come to realize that you have not truly responded to the gospel, I don't care if you grew up in church, you've been in church your whole life. If you have not responded to the gospel today, I plead with you to respond the gospel. the gospel is the good news that Jesus has taken the punishment of our sin and suffered in our place so that we may stand without stain as the psalm sings, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne, no longer in darkness under God's wrath, but adopted into God's family. If you have not responded to the gospel this morning, I plead with you, turn to Christ. Place your trust and your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And I pray that we walk away from this text today knowing that God's true people reject idolatry, embrace the gospel, and grow in grace unto the end. Let's pray. God, this morning... God, we're grateful for this text. We are grateful for Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. We're grateful for Paul's words, for his assertion, for believers to turn from idolatry and to turn to Christ, keeping our eyes on Jesus and to grow in grace. To examine that which is influencing us, that we may keep in step with the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would challenge and encourage us here today not to walk away resolved to be better versions of ourselves or to just do better, but God, that we would walk away from this time today recognizing our great need to be like you. And that Jesus, through your word, we would draw close to you and grow in our love for you, for your word, and for your people. God, would you work in us for the glory of your name. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.